Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Just minutes ago, President Biden sending a direct message to Russian President Vladimir Putin and to the Russian people. The lead starts right now. Breaking news moments ago, President Biden saying there is plenty of room for diplomacy to still work, but if Russia invades Ukraine, all options are on the table. Our team of correspondents and experts are standing by to react. Also ahead, an American first for an American problem, a gunmaker held legally liable for the horrific Sandy Hook massacre where 21st graders and six adults were gunned down. Now, some of those parents are reacting and Skating her way or cheating her way to gold, Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva takes the ice after claiming she only failed her doping test because of an innocent mix-up with her grandfather's meds. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with breaking news in our world lead just moments ago. President Biden addressing the world from the White House, saying that he wants to give diplomacy every chance to succeed with Russia, but that it still remains, quote, distinctly possible that Russian President Vladimir Putin will order an invasion of Ukraine. Biden announcing that U.S. intelligence believes Russia now has 150,000 troops encircling Ukraine. Also, Biden also acknowledged Russia's claims today that it is moving some troops away from the Ukrainian border after recent military drills. But Biden said the U.S. has not yet been able to confirm whether that Russian claim is true. Let's get straight to CNN's Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Uh, CNN's Clarissa Ward is live for us in Kiev, Ukraine. And CNN's Nick Robertson is also live for us in Moscow. Caitlin, let me start with you. Why did the White House think it was important for President Biden to come out and give this speech today, this direct address to the world and to Putin and the Russian people? Well, Jake, that's something they haven't fully explained yet. This is a speech that was not on President Biden's schedule when we woke up this morning. It was something they had debated adding and then, of course, ultimately did. But they were clear from the beginning that they did not expect it to be any kind of major announcement from President Biden. Instead, they saw it really more of a status update. And it was the first time in several days that you'd seen the president actually address what is happening. And he did come out and say that the United States has not verified that claim by Russians, that they are pulling back some of those troops that have been on Ukraine's border. Of course, that is a claim that was met for obvious reasons with a healthy dose of skepticism. And so he did say it would be a good thing if they did do that, but he said they haven't verified it yet. And that the threat of an invasion remains distinctly possible because of where those troops that they do still have on the borders that you still can't see are positioned. And we should also note, Jake, he did increase that number from what previous assessments had been around 130,000 U.S. or Russian forces surrounding Ukraine. He now said that was at least 150,000 forces. So the president coming out saying that they will continue to try to pursue diplomacy here, but warning that this idea that we have been talking about for the last several weeks now, that an invasion could happen, is still very much on the table. And and Nick, uh, in Moscow, it was pretty interesting, President Biden directly addressing uh, the Russian people. Let's, Let's play a small clip of that. The United States and NATO are not a threat to Russia. Ukraine is not threatening Russia. 
<clears throat> Neither the U.S. nor NATO have missiles in Ukraine. We do not, do not have plans to put them there as well. We're not targeting the people of Russia. We do not seek to destabilize Russia. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. And I do not believe you want a bloody, destructive war against Ukraine. So it was 1130 at night in Moscow when Biden started speaking. Um, I don't know if it was carried live. Uh, Did Russian state media air it? Not so far, Jake. Uh, And I think we can estimate fairly accurately that when they do, it'll get uh, President Biden's message will get somewhat mangled through the Kremlin spin machine uh, that runs on state TV. Uh, President Biden's message, if it lands with the people here, um, it's it's one that will perhaps resonate. Certainly, there are a lot of people here that don't want war, don't feel that they want to go to war with uh, the people of Ukraine. But President Putin has so constricted and essentially suffocated the independent media, getting President Biden's message to land in the way that he made it is going to be extremely difficult. And of course, every day we hear from the Kremlin that everything that comes from Washington, D.C., from the White House is all spin, it's hyperbole, it's hysteria, and it's a propaganda message. So uh, President Biden is really trying to get and undermine the Kremlin's propaganda. Um, it's going to be a, t- a big ask to hope that it can land squarely, but it will land with some people. And Nick, there, there was a direct contrast to what Putin said and what Biden said about what can be negotiated. Yeah, this was really interesting because President Biden said, yes, we can negotiate. We can negotiate on uh, transparency of troops. We can negotiate over sort of arms control on, you know, strategic stability. We can negotiate about that. But we're not going to deviate from our core principles. And those core principles, of course, that Ukraine has the right to join NATO and NATO is not going to go back to its 1997 lines as the Kremlin wants. Contrasting that, today President Putin said he's ready to negotiate. He's ready to negotiate on some of those other smaller things that I spoke of, but only, only if it's negotiating as well on those core issues, those core demands that Russia has that President Biden has again said are not up for discussion. So where President Putin thinks this road of discussion is going to go or how he's going to get on it when he's set that threshold, President Biden, I think, has answered that question. There's, there's a high threshold here. And Clarissa Ward is in Kiev, Ukraine, the capital. Um, Clarissa, Russia claims that they're withdrawing some troops from the border Uh, from Ukraine. We just heard President Biden say that would be welcome news, but the U.S. has not verified that it's true. Um, What do Ukrainian government officials, the Ukrainian people think about the, the veracity of that statement? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, Jake, there's not a huge amount of trust here. In fact, there's a lot of skepticism, and we saw that reflected in the comments of the foreign minister here, Dmitry Kuleba, who came out and said, we don't believe what we hear, we believe what we see. And if we do see a meaningful reduction of Russian troops, then we will obviously uh, greet that happily as a marked sign of de-escalation. But until we see something significant, something actually tangible, uh, then no one is rushing to celebrate. And as you mentioned, President Biden said uh, that it does not appear yet that, you know, that they have not been able to verify uh, that that troop reduction has begun, that some analysts even say that they continue to Uh, maintain threatening positions. We also heard from the head of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, who said the same thing, that so far they haven't seen any signs of de-escalation. So while I think there's definitely a chink of light uh, throughout the course of the day, given the sort of 
hopes for diplomacy now, there is undergirding that a huge amount of skepticism and cynicism as to how this will actually be playing out. Nobody wants to get duped here, and nobody wants to take their eye off the ball until it becomes clear that there really is a meaningful de-escalation, Jake. And Caitlin, President Biden also addressed the potential consequences that the American people might see if Russia invades uh, Ukraine. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think that's been a big part of this conversation over the last several weeks as you've seen this buildup happen is people wondering how this affects them here. And the president saying not just the principles of democracy and sovereignty, which, of course, is something that he and his national security team have pushed, but also the energy impacts of this and talking about their efforts to try to shield Americans from the impacts that they could very well see from that, because he said this would not be painless for Americans here at home if this invasion does move forward. Obviously, he was talking about what's really important here, the humanitarian costs that could happen if this Russian invasion that, of course, the, uh, the U.S. has assessed they are capable of doing was carried out. But he also was talking about the difficulties that they would see when it comes to energy prices here at home. And he also talked about how he has offered warnings and his national security team to the Russians about the effects if they went after U.S. companies when it comes to these cyber attacks, which has been another major factor of a potential invasion that we've talked about. All right, Caitlin at the White House, uh, Clarissa in Ukraine and Nick in Moscow. Thank you. One and all. Uh, joining us now to discuss former U.S. ambassador to NATO under President Obama, uh, Eva Dalder, an undistinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center and esteemed war correspondent Robin Wright. Ambassador, let me start with you. President Biden continues to argue that there's plenty of room for diplomacy. Here's a little snippet. The United States has put on the table concrete ideas to establish a security environment in Europe. We're proposing new arms control measures, new transparency measures, new strategic stability measures. These measures would apply to all parties, NATO and Russia alike. But Ambassador Dalder, I, I have a difficult time imagining that that's going to sway Putin and convince him of uh, the good intentions that the Americans and NATO have. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. Uh, I think the president uh, needs to put on the table, as he has today, but also in uh, written uh, statements to the Russians, uh, an idea about what uh, we might be able to talk about. And there's plenty to talk about if we want to find ways to improve European security writ large. There are uh, measures that it may not have uh, may have applied in the 1990s that should be revisited that, and, and a number of that. But the reality of the matter is that what Putin wants is something we can't give him through diplomacy. Uh, he wants to control Ukraine. He wants to many ways reset the European security order that was agreed to after the Cold War. And in some ways, he wants to end American dominance, not only of the world. These aren't things that can be negotiated. Uh, and uh, frankly, I don't even know whether he can achieve those militarily. But it seems to be that he wants to threaten us into unilateral surrender. And Biden went out today and said, it's not going to happen. This is going to be a very costly mistake uh, if, if Putin continues to uh, threaten and then in further invade uh, Ukraine. Uh, and uh, we're ready for that. And that was a statement that we needed to hear. Uh, Robin, uh, President Biden didn't announce any new policies. Um, he did make this direct appeal to the Russian people. Um, what did you think of the speech? What, what did you think about the strategy behind the speech? Well, the reality is that nothing has changed. Uh, but the we are at what the Pentagon this weekend called the crescendo moment. We are on the edge of a precipice, and the Russians have sufficient troops now st stationed around 
uh, three board, three sides of a country the size of, but slightly smaller than Texas. Um, and Putin is pushing his agenda uh, despite the overture uh, to diplomacy, despite the claim that some troops have withdrawn. And, you know, the nothing is negotiable when it comes to the fundamentals. I think Vladimir Putin is the four factors that produce this crisis are still very much in place. He looks at it very differently than we do. We look at it logically in terms of what can we do to compromise on these issues of European security. And Putin looks at Ukraine as something that is part of historic Russia dating back more than a millennia. And on those grounds, there's very little room for compromise. So we uh, are now at that moment where both sides claim to be interested in diplomacy. And yet it's very hard to see because of these different worldviews, this different sense of history, this different sense of what strategic um, values or goals are, that it's very hard to see where there is room for compromise. Putin is now uh, crafting his legacy. He's almost 70. Uh, he's looked at Ukraine in the manifesto he issued last year as something that is that he wants to be part of Russia one way or another. Mr. Ambassador, um, President Biden did say if Russia invades Ukraine, there will be consequences here in the U.S. for the American people, including higher energy prices. He's clearly trying to, to explain to the American people why they should care, uh, you know, even though it's been very clearly stated by President Biden and others in his, is in his, in his administration that U.S. troops are not going into Ukraine. Um, what do you think of, of that part of the job that he's doing, trying to explain to people why they, why they should care, the American public? Well, I think he's doing a, a good job explaining why freedom matters, uh, I, I think is how we ended it. If we don't stop when freedom is attacked here, then uh, we will pay just a higher price somewhere else. He also underscored the incredible importance of the NATO alliance uh, to stay together and of the U.S. commitment and the commitment of all allies to defend each other uh, and every inch of NATO territory. Ukraine is not a member of NATO, and therefore that commitment doesn't exist towards it. But it is important that when you have 150,000 uh, troops of the strongest military power in Europe uh, ready to roll in massive force, uh, not only uh, uh, into Ukraine, but possibly further, uh, that we make very clear to all of our friends and allies, the Romanians, the Baltics, the Poles, others, that the United States is here uh, ready to defend themselves. We have a NATO ministerial uh, of defense ministers going on uh, tomorrow. Uh, this is the right time for the president to say, we do hope for diplomacy. We want diplomacy, uh, but we have principles. We need to stand on those principles. And uh, here is how we're going to be able to uh, uh, to unite uh, all of the NATO countries single purpose. And it's important for the American people to understand uh, that standing up for principle is, ex is, is what uh, has made the America the power it has long been since uh, the end of World War II and that we need to remain that power. Uh, if the if the rest of the world is going to be able to rely on us. So that's why we, we are here. That's why it is important. And if there are costs to be paid, we will pay those costs. But it is important that we stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with our friends uh, uh, who embrace democracy and want to choose their own future and not let a bully like uh, Putin determine uh, their future for them. Robin Wright, any final thoughts? What, should, what do you think the American people should prepare for? Do you still think Putin is going to invade? Uh, I, 
if you, if I were a betting woman, I suspect that his interests are in in exerting his influence one way or another over Ukraine. I think the important thing to remember in all of this is that the issue is not just Ukraine. It really is the kinds of things we fought for in, in World War II during the Cold War, that uh, when he talks about liberty and freedom, the Western alliance and all the things the United States has built to try to avoid the kind of conflicts we saw in the 20th century, that um, this is a much bigger issue that will define much of the 20th, 21st century and America's place in the world, frankly. Yeah. Ambassador Evo Dalder, Robin Wright, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. So what is happening, actually happening on the ground in Ukraine? Are Ukrainians bracing for an attack or are they just going about their lives? We're going to go live to Ukraine next. Plus, California dreaming about taking off the masks and sharing some smiles with strangers. The latest rollback of COVID restrictions coming up. We're back with breaking news in our world lead President Biden speaking at the White House just moments ago, insisting that he wants to give diplomacy every chance to succeed with Russia. And as Biden was speaking, CNN learned the president of Ukraine will travel to a key port city tomorrow, which could be a Russian target in any possible invasion. Let's take a deep dive into what's happening on both the east and west sides of Ukraine. CNN anchor Aaron Burnett is live in Lviv near the border with Poland. CNN's Alex Marquardt is live in Mariupol on the southeast coast of Ukraine. Alex, let me start with you. President Zelensky is going to be there in Mariupol tomorrow. It's important to note, if Putin wanted to connect Russia with Crimea, which he seized in 2014, he would go right through the city that you're in. Is there any sense there that Putin is serious about de-escalation? Well, Jake, you really do get a sense here of the mixed messaging from Russia, the confusion over what they're doing, their claims that they're withdrawing. At the same time, we're seeing them build up. We are in Mariupol. As you mentioned, this is a major port city on the Sea of Azov. That is also where Crimea is. And they have stationed thousands of Russian troops in Crimea, which could help uh, invade Ukraine from the south. Now, today, the Russians are saying that they are withdrawing some of their troops from Crimea. They say that those troops, along with tanks and artillery, got on trains and are heading back to Russia. That, of course, remains to be seen. And, Jake, at the same time, we're also seeing satellite imagery that shows they are continuing to build up around here. Straight across the water, across the Sea of Azov, we have seen satellite imagery of 10 uh, new strike bombers that have been based in Krasnodar, that is in Russia, they could get here in absolutely no time. At the same time, that same set of satellite imagery is also showing that some 60 new helicopters have arrived in Crimea, um, being based at uh, an air base that hasn't been used in around 20 years. So that buildup is continuing. Jake, as you note, it has long been thought that Putin has wanted to join Crimea, which he seized eight years ago. With the Russian mainland, that would come right through here. We are just about 35 miles from the Russian border, even closer to that area of fighting uh, where Russia has been, been backing separatists against Ukrainian forces for the last eight years. Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, stay safe and thank you. Let's go now to CNN anchor Aaron Burnett, who's live in Lviv. And Aaron, both the Ukrainian Defense Ministry's website and one of Ukraine's largest commercial banks were both hit by an apparent cyber attack today. What, what are you learning about that? So, Jake, you know, we've always heard that this would be what Putin would do as a precursor to an actual physical invasion. Uh, I should note that they had done similar attacks to these sort of uh, 
the, the attacks we see today in January. Uh, it obviously is not directly clear that Putin's behind this, but I'll tell you who was attacked and you can uh, make your own inference. The Ministry of Defense, uh, the Armed Forces of Ukraine websites, both of those down, as well as the largest bank in the country and one and, and one other major Ukrainian bank. So that's what we see. And they're basically a major, major attack. So when you go to the website, you can't load it. You can't get information. As of now, we understand they're still down. Um, but, you know, that, that that's the situation where you're in, where it's just this this uncertainty moment by moment and an instability, you know, sort of a feeling of, well, what does this mean? Is this nothing? Is this just a, a faint of hand uh, or is it the beginning of something different? Aaron, today you met with a group of civilians in Lviv, Ukraine, who are, who are training for a potential military conflict. Yeah, you know, Jake, it was amazing. Um, you know, the the national pride here is very palpable. And, and as I know, you know, you and I have discussed and I've been saying this, uh, this is true no matter whether you tend to speak Ukrainian or you tend to speak Russian. And a lot of people are much more comfortable speaking Russian. Doesn't mean that they aren't passionately and ardently Ukrainian. Uh, so what we do see is, you know, civilians getting ready, most of them to prepare to defend themselves in their actual homes. Some of them, though, going out in, you know, full tactical gear, people who are used to shooting, who are, are arming themselves now with things like AR, AR-15 rifles. Uh, to fight. And we spoke to one of them uh, and we went to a shooting range today where some of these guys were actually preparing. These are all guys with college degrees, graduate degrees, and they are prepared to fight. Uh, I talked to one of them and here's what he said he's seeing at the shooting club now. Club, we see a growing tendency for people wanting to learn how to shoot. So we are, uh, are kind of um, having uh, this weekly uh, trainings for for the civilians and last week we had a training for 350 people so uh, guys just want to learn how to shoot because they want to protect their families so people want to protect their families jake and and that's the, the vast majority as he said all ages he said he was actually helping teach an 11 year old boy uh, and his family over the weekend but again you also see uh, these men who are much more experienced who are prepared to to do whatever they need to do on the streets and who are actually coordinating with Ukrainian defense forces and Ukrainian police because they say that they are ready and they don't think that Russia realizes that. Hmm. Aaron Burnett in Lviv, Ukraine, thank you so much for that great reporting. And of course, you can see more from Aaron tonight as she anchors out front from Western Ukraine. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Two downward trends in the battle against COVID. While one of them is good news, the other is rather concerning. Stay with us. In today's health lead, the numbers really tell the story of where we stand with COVID today. Just look at this drop. Right now, new daily COVID cases are a fifth of where they were during mid-January's record high when the Omicron variant was spreading like wildfire. But another graph shows a more concerning downward trend. That's fewer people are getting booster shots. As CNN's Alexander Field reports for us now, that slowing pace has some health experts worried. California joining the wave of states saying farewell to mask mandates, but with one exception. Like in some other states recently dropping the requirements, masks are still required in schools. The state plans to reassess at the end of the month. It's reasonable and it's responsible. That way, since they're in schools together and they're always passing by each other, I think it's best if they wear the mask. While Virginia's lawmakers have passed a bill to end school mask mandates now. I'm really looking forward to seeing kids and, and, and parents reestablish their decision rights. 
The rollback of restrictions continuing as COVID cases nationwide plummet, down about 80 percent from the Omicron peak, hovering now around pre-Omicron levels, but before the CDC makes any new recommendations on how to move forward. If it continues to go in that direction, you're going to be seeing the CDC makes the recommendations. At the end of the day, it's for the locals to do it. Just five states still have indoor mask mandates in place, along with Puerto Rico. Washington, D.C. is letting its mandate lapse at the end of the month. We're trending in the right direction. We have some expectations about what we may be able to do if we keep moving in the right direction, uh, but we're not there yet. Deaths across the country still remain high, averaging around 2,300 a day. New CDC data showing Omicron's toll on children, with peak hospitalizations four times higher than during the Delta surge. As the pace of booster shots hits a low not seen since the CDC first recommended booster shots for seniors and at-risk people back in September. And Jake, as the country looks to make its way out of the pandemic, there will be a new FDA commissioner to lead the way. The Senate voting today to confirm Dr. Robert Califf. Six Republicans voting for the pick, five Democrats voting against uh, after expressing their opposition to his ties to the pharmaceutical industry. Jake. All right, Alexander Field, thank you so much. Uh, let's bring in Michael Osterholm. He's the director for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy. Uh, good to see you again. I want to dig into this, this drop in numbers. The weekly average of daily cases is down 44% since last week. COVID hospitalizations dropped 23% versus last week. COVID deaths down 10% since last week. You've been studying infectious disease for decades. Might these numbers suggest to us that the Omicron variant is petering out in the U.S.? Well, this virus is doing really what we expected to do back in November and December is cause a viral blizzard. And with a viral blizzard, at the end of that blizzard comes sunny days. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing right now. Now, we have to be careful based on data from South Africa and some of the European countries. It didn't come down at the very tail as much as we'd hoped it would, meaning that it won't be anywhere near the peak. But in fact, it still could have ongoing uh, transmission of some concern in our communities for the weeks and months ahead. The numbers also suggest that the pace has slowed for booster shots in September when the CDC first recommended uh, that everybody who's vaccinated go and get a booster. Only 28 percent of Americans are fully boosted. What do you make of the slowing trend? Do you think for the most part everyone who wanted a booster got one and for whatever reason most folks just didn't think they needed to get it? Well, you know, Jake, this is a real challenge because the people that need to get that extra dose and, you know, I'm one of those that uh, hate calling it a booster because I think it always should have been a three prime vaccine, three doses uh, before you really complete being fully vaccinated. But the point of it is what's confusing to us is these are people who are willing to get the first two. They weren't vaccine hostile. They weren't vaccine hesitant. And so it is important to get that third one. Data last week from the CDC, another a number of studies coming out now showing that that third dose can be very important in reducing serious illness, hospitalizations, and deaths. So we just have to keep pushing it there, uh, knowing that uh, this is the group that's most likely to get that extra dose if we, in fact, continue to emphasize why it's so important. The state of California today dropped its mask mandate, except in schools. Does it make sense to drop mask mandates everywhere except in schools? And if so, can you explain that to me? Because I don't get it. Well, let me just say I can't explain mandates overall in terms of masks. 
Remember, we've talked about this in the sense of saying that a mask is a mask is a mask. People wearing face cloth coverings and the data we have supporting how well they work really are wearing nothing more than apparel decoration. We need to wear high quality masks, the N95 respirators, the KN95s, and Omicron is the by far the most infectious virus we've seen really begging the fact that we have to wear these much higher levels of protection. So just mandating a mask to me has never been by itself an important public health element. It's about, are we also mandating the fact that they're using high quality, true respiratory protection masks? What about the, the disconnect between bars and restaurants? You don't have to do masks anymore, arenas for concerts or whatever, but schools still, still do it. I mean, I think there's been an inconsistent issue. If nothing else, we in public health owe the public a better explanation, a better plan for what we mean by masking and why. I think we've created some of our own problems by forcing masking in a way that wasn't always that protective on the public. I'll tell you right now, an N95 respirator, the kind that you can readily buy at any hardware store, can be highly effective in reducing your risk of either getting infected or transmitting the virus. But we have not conveyed that. Jake, if you walk out in the streets of those wearing a mask, you'll see a quarter of them still wear it under their nose. That's nothing more than a chin diaper. That does nothing to protect them. So my whole message has been whether it's a school, a bar, a restaurant, anywhere, we have to wear high quality respiratory protection masks or we're really doing very little except upsetting people by telling them they have to wear that face cloth covering. Michael Osterholm, thank you so much. Appreciate it, sir. A groundbreaking thank settlement. You. In one of the worst school shootings in American history, why the Sandy Hook family say this should serve as a warning to all gun makers. Stay with us. In our national lead, for the first time ever, a gun manufacturer is being held legally liable for a mass shooting in the United States. On December 14, 2012, 20 first graders and six adults were gunned down with a semi-automatic rifle at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. Today, the families of nine victims agreed to a $73 million settlement with Remington, the manufacturer of that gun. They had sued Remington years ago, claiming the company was partly responsible because of how the company marketed the weapon, touting its combat style. CNN's Erica Hill is live for us in Trumbull, Connecticut, where the families held an emotional press conference. Erica, tell us more. What did they have to say? Yeah, that number will really grab your attention, $73 million. But what we heard from both the families and the attorneys is this is not really about the money. As you point out, Jake, what they were going after were the marketing practices, which they said violated Connecticut state law. And that was going to be an uphill battle is what everybody said. Well, today we can tell you that $73 million settlement also included another part that the families say is key here when it comes to accountability and specifically more information on those marketing practices. The other part of the settlement is that they now have access to thousands of internal documents and, Jake, they can make those documents public. Uh, what the families and the attorneys say is that this will show uh, why and how this marketing was, uh, in their words, uh, such a problem uh, in the way that it went after specifically young men. And Erica, you sat down with some of the family members. I did. Um, you know, as you said, this was emotional. This is always emotional after nine years when you're talking about 20 kindergartners and first graders and six adults who were gunned down. And I spoke, I sat down with Mark and Jackie Barton, whose seven-year-old son Daniel was killed on that day. And they talked about what it's like in these moments when it feels like a bit of a victory, but it's understandably, Jake, hollow in many ways. Take a listen. 
These have these moments when there's any kind of a victory or forward progress that you want to celebrate, and then it just kind of hits you like a gut punch that, you know, her Daniel's still gone. It, it's, it's a strange psychological uh, dynamic that yeah. continues to beat the crap out of us. We can protect other families by course correcting for this uh, advertising practices that this, these companies are engaging in. We'll do that. There has to be accountability, especially when you're marketing the single most lethal consumer product there is. You should have extra responsibility. None of this will bring any of those lives back. However, what we kept hearing today is that this is about what's right and what's wrong, that this is about responsibility, about accountability, and Jake, about pulling back that curtain on the gun industry and how things are done, an industry that really up until today, many have seen as being one with basically immunity. But that changed today. Yeah, I interviewed Mark Bardem years ago, and it's obviously, there's no such thing as closure in situations like that. It's always going to be awful. Erica Hill, thank you so much. Really important, uh, really important story. And another significant legal settlement revealed today, Britain's uh, Prince Andrew will not have to testify in that trial related to a lawsuit accusing him of sexually assaulting an underage girl. Virginia Dufre, his accuser, has reached a settlement with the prince. Now, Dufre had claimed that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked her when she was 17 and forced her to have sex with his friends, including three times with the prince. A new court document revealed today shows that Prince Andrew entered into some sort of financial agreement that includes an undisclosed substantial donation to Jufre's charity in support of victims' rights. The prince also says he regrets his association with Epstein and, and pledges to demonstrate his regret by, quote, supporting the fight against the evils of sex trafficking, unquote. She might skate away with it. Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva takes the ice and the lead as she claims the positive doping test was all just an innocent mix-up. Stay with us. In our sports lead, Russian teen Olympic figure skating prodigy Kamila Valieva took the ice today with the world watching after a decision by an independent court allowed the 15-year-old to compete despite failing a doping test. Valieva told the International Olympic Committee the positive test in December was the result of an innocent mix-up with her grandfather's medication. CNN Selena Wang was inside the stadium for the teen's emotional return to the ice. Camilla Valieva, Russian figure skater and favorite to take individual gold at these Olympics, raced into the lead of the women's single skating competition, allowed that chance despite her testing positive before the Games for a banned drug. Valieva defended her positive drug test by saying it was caused by a mix-up with her grandfather's heart medication. She presented elements which brought some doubts about uh, her guilt. She was in a very special situation that the Olympic Games take place only every four years and she if she would miss the competition at these Games, uh, the damage could not be repaired. The 15-year-old stumbled on her first jump, but she gave an otherwise stellar performance, sealing her place in Thursday's free skating program. Valieva visibly emotional when she finished her routine. Valieva returned the drug test on Christmas Day, but it was only last week that the sample was reported to have come back positive for the drug trimetazidine, after she and her teammates had already won gold here. The World Anti-Doping Agency says it will also be investigating her entourage, and the teen could still be stripped of her medal. 
a glimpse behind the glimmering surface into the murky world of Russian sports. Maybe it's time for a, a, a timeout for Russia uh, in the Olympics. You simply say, sorry, you're, you, you will not be invited to the next games. You will not be uh, able to host any uh, you know, Olympic sport events and so forth. That, that will get their attention. Team USA not holding back in a statement. Quote, this appears to be another chapter in the systematic and pervasive disregard for clean sport by Russia. The Russian Figure Skating Federation president labeling the decision common sense and justice. But though the Russian Olympic Committee says Valieva tested negative for banned performance-enhancing drugs before and after the test in question, inescapable is the fact that clean athletes are performing against a competition favorite who tested positive once. At an Olympics dogged by politics and China's rights record, this doping scandal tainting the sport here as well. And Jake, Valieva, she burst into tears when she finished her performance as if she was feeling the weight of this controversy. When she walked off the ice, she had a solemn expression immediately holding on to her stuffed animal. It was a stark reminder that, Jake, she's just 15 years old, a victim, many say, of Russia's system of state-sponsored doping. This scandal now not only tainting her sensational talent, but also the integrity of these entire Olympics. All right, Selena Wang inside the Olympic bubble for us. Thank you so much. Can the world really believe Vladimir Putin's claim that he does not want war? Former National Security Advisor and and UN Ambassador John Bolton will join us live next. Stay with us. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the one word change impacting thousands of people. How a priest's 20-year-long mistake could mean thousands of Catholics might need to get baptized and even married again. Plus, United States of Addiction, Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to investigate a radical treatment using brain surgery to try to combat opioid addiction. And breaking news leading this hour, moments ago, President Biden addressed the world saying he wants to give diplomacy every chance to succeed with Russia, but Biden also appealing directly to the Russian people saying he does not believe most of them want a bloody war with Ukraine. And to CNN's Matthew Chance reports, Biden laid out the costs, not just to Russia and Ukraine, but to the United States if Putin does, in fact, ultimately order an invasion. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. President Biden with a powerful message for Russia. Mid fears it stands on the brink of war with Ukraine. A war that would, he said, be a self-inflicted wound. If Russia attacks Ukraine, it would be a war of choice or a war without cause or reason. If Russia does invade in the days and weeks ahead, the human cost for Ukraine will be immense. President Biden spoke as the crisis reaches a potential turning point with these images of what Russia says is a drawdown of some of its forces near the Ukrainian border. Russian defense officials say these tanks and other armored vehicles have been taking part in planned tactical exercises and are now returning to their permanent bases. It's a possible Russian de-escalation that's been greeted in Ukraine and elsewhere with suspicion. We continuously hear different statements from Russia, so we have a rule. We believe not what we hear, but what we see. If we see the pullout, we will believe in de-escalation. But it's not just a pullout. As the Russian and German leaders met in Moscow, there are also signs from the Kremlin that Russia, for the moment, is looking to talk, not go to war. 
Do we want it or not? Of course not. That is why we have offered our proposals to start the negotiation process, which should lead to an agreement of providing equal security for everybody, including our country. But as ever, messages from Moscow are mixed. And while some Russian forces were drawn down, major military drills, like these multiple rocket launches in Crimea, were stepped up. These images released by the Russian Defense Ministry as President Putin spoke. There's also this new satellite imagery suggesting a major deployment of what military analysts say are at least 60 Russian transport and attack helicopters at a previously vacant Crimean base. Amid encouraging signs that Russia is easing tensions over Ukraine, its capability to stage a devastating strike remains very much in place. Well, Jake, tonight Ukrainian officials are reacting very positively to President Biden's message to Moscow. One official telling me it, the, the remarks were firm and resolute. Another telling CNN that Biden's call for a peaceful solution, he hoped, was heard correctly tonight in Moscow. All right, Matthew Chance in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN's Fred Plekin, who's live for us in Moscow, where German Chancellor Olaf Scholz met with Russian President Putin in, a, in a, something of a last-ditch diplomatic effort. And, Fred, you spoke with Chancellor Schultz after the meeting. What did he have to say? Yeah, you're absolutely right, uh, um, uh, Jake. It was certainly one of those last-ditch efforts at diplomacy. And I think one of the things that... Um, uh, Chancellor Schultz said to you in your interview just a couple of days ago is he said the important thing right now was for Western leaders to give Vladimir Putin the exact same message to make sure he heard the same things from President Biden, President Macron of France and of course from the German Chancellor as well that the West needed to see de-escalation that there would be severe consequences if there was no de-escalation and there was a further invasion. Now of course the big sort of leverage that Germans hold in their hands is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the U.S. has said they believe the Germans should use that leverage to try and bring Moscow to do some of that de-escalation. So I pressed Olaf Scholz on whether or not he had actually done that in the talks with Vladimir Putin. Here's what he had to say. First of all, did you make clear to Vladimir Putin that if there is a further invasion of Ukraine, that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline project would most probably be dead, but would be dead, according to the Americans? And then second of all, do you think that any headway was made to today to make sure that war will be averted? We have a very clear strategy, and this is first saying that uh, if there would be a military aggression against Ukraine, that this would have hard consequences, and we are well prepared to decide united on the necessary sanctions. We already prepared them, and we are ready to decide on them if this case would happen. But on the other hand, it is absolutely clear that we do all necessary, that is necessary to avoid this situation. And this is what we are doing. But you did talk a lot about Nord Stream 2, didn't you? It was a large part of the press conference. It was part of the press conference, so you might imagine that we also discussed on this in our meeting. Um, it's absolutely, all understand what the situation will be then. All understand what the situation will be then seeming to allude uh, to uh, the Germans saying that obviously it would have severe consequences for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and probably would mean the end of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. 
But again, both sides saying they hope that diplomacy will uh, prevail. And, and, and the Russian leader as well saying in his press conference with Olaf Scholz that he's committed to diplomacy, of course, very much a question mark to many international observers out there, Jake. All right, Fred Pletkin in Moscow, thanks so much, appreciate it. Let's talk about this with the former ambassador to the United Nations uh, in the Bush administration, John Bolton. He also served as former President Trump's national security advisor. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, good to see you. First, I want to get your reaction to President Biden's comments earlier today. He spoke uh, directly to the Russian people at times, saying you are not our enemy and saying invading Ukraine will be a self-inflicted uh, wound. Uh, do you think that's the right message President Biden needs to be sending? Well, it's it's the right message. It's a question whether uh, Putin believes him or or believes the threats, whether the effort to establish deterrence by threatening economic sanctions has credibility uh, with Putin, given that we didn't impose sanctions after they moved into Georgia in 2008. We didn't impose effective sanctions after they annexed Crimea and moved into the Donbass and 2014, and we've just withdrawn from Afghanistan. Biden may be sincere, but it's still questionable whether Putin believes him. If you were advising President Biden, what would you tell him to do? Well, you're asking now what I would do on the 21st move of the chess game when I think about the past 10 moves have been a mistake. I still don't think that we have deterrence. Uh, and I think we're, we're approaching this uh, as if we're in a crisis situation right now. You know, on Friday, the Biden administration told Europeans that the invasion could come within the next nine days and pointed to tomorrow as the most likely day. Today, Biden said in the coming days and weeks. So I think uh, there's another potential damage to credibility because of hyping the timing of the invasion. There's no question what Russia's capabilities are. But when Putin says he doesn't want war, you know, he means it. He wants it for free. And he's going to see if he can get it through diplomacy with what I think is the uh, weakest link in the NATO chain, and that's Germany. I think his meeting today with Schultz is going to be very significant. I think the staged managed conversation with Foreign Minister Lavrov yesterday, who said diplomacy still had a chance, this withdrawal of some Russian forces, if that's what it was. I think Putin said to Schultz today, you are the key person. You are the person who can do the diplomacy. Uh, and we'll see if he can drive a wedge in NATO using that approach. So when you say the deterrence has not been sufficient, uh, we've heard from a lot of Republicans on Capitol Hill who say that the economic sanctions, the, this very strict, harsh regime of sanctions that the Biden administration has been threatening, they should just be imposing. And then, you know, if, if then if Putin backs off and the troops go home, then he can lift them. But is that what you think? Yeah, I, I think the cost uh, of the sanctions is a potential cost for for Putin. And as I say, I don't, I don't think he believes in the credibility of the threat. I, have, I think, and I've said this for some time, you have to apply the pressure early. But I think there's another fallacy in the administration's approach, and it's been seen in the last four or five days. They are talking about a full-out invasion uh, of Ukraine, talking about missiles and drone attacks on cities like Kiev. I think it's more likely Putin will slice up Ukraine, take more of the eastern part take the northern shore of the Black Sea and the port of Odessa and landlock uh, uh, Ukraine, it won't be a full-out invasion. And then people will say, or the risk is people will say, is that all there is? That's not so bad. And the sanctions will not be as sweeping as Biden has promised. The Biden administration, um, as you know, keeps saying an invasion could come any day now. Ukraine, at least publicly, uh, has voiced skepticism instead expressing concerns that Americans warning are, are having a, a negative impact on Ukrainians, panicking 
Ukrainians. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of all that? Well, I think there's something to that. I think when you move your, your embassy from the capital to a distant city, it doesn't imply much confidence. I think uh, Putin could see that as a sign of weakness. And let's be clear, Putin benefits from this crisis. Russia's making money. Price of oil, even after the reports of uh, potential uh, drawbacks, price of oil is still over $90 a barrel. People are being hurt or in Ukraine as confidence diminishes. You can imagine what insurance rates are for ships traveling to Odessa, for shipments coming across the border. The squeeze now is on Ukraine, not on Russia. There was an interesting piece in The Atlantic over the weekend by Ann Applebaum. I'm not sure if you saw, but basically she says that the entire West, every diplomat uh, and and leader in the West uh, is just playing by a different set of rules that Putin does. Putin doesn't respect borders. He doesn't respect treaties, even once he's signed. Uh, and that they just need to be treated, basically, I'm paraphrasing here, as, as a pariah state where no money laundering is allowed, not just some prosecution and stunt prevention, but, but none. Russian oligarchs not allowed to purchase property in London or in Miami. Uh, just, a, just a complete uh, ostracization of Putin. Do you agree with that? Do you think that, that this needs a whole rethinking of how Russia is treated? Well, I think the West as a whole, but particularly the United States and this administration need to get away from the mirror imaging fallacy that the person on the other side of the negotiating table is reasonable and wants to achieve a solution to the problem. That's not how Putin's government negotiates. It's not how Xi Jinping's government negotiates or Kim Jong-un's or the Ayatollah Khamenei's. And yet we're still negotiating with them the same way. It's not a problem unique to Russia. At this point, do you think there's any way to stop a Russian invasion and have Putin think that he's uh, able to save face at the same time? Oh, absolutely. I think Putin's got a full range of options here. Uh, Splitting NATO uh, in almost any way is a plus for him. A weaker NATO is a stronger Russia. And I think he's got fallback positions uh, that would be very hard to get a United West to sanction. For example, without moving another troop, He could declare that the two autonomous republics in uh, eastern Ukraine are now sovereign Russian territory, annexing them uh, as he did uh, the Crimea. Do you think the Germans would uh, cut off Nord Stream 2 because of that? Won't change anything on the ground. Will change sovereignty. No troop movements at all. These are the sorts of things. Putin's got a laundry list, and uh, we're still focused on missile attacks on Kiev. All right, Ambassador John Bolton, good to see you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Then it's not just the fear of troops on the ground. Ukrainian agencies were hit by an apparent cyber attack today. Who might be responsible? Then a look at just how far the Chinese government will go to control what people in China see, including removing entire plot lines from popular TV shows such as France. We're going to go behind China's wall. Stay with us. <clears throat> Welcome back. In our world lead, <coughs> pardon me, Ukrainian government officials say some of its agencies were hit by an apparent cyber attack today, specifically Ukraine's defense ministry and one of the country's largest banks. While it was not immediately clear who was responsible, the cyber attack, of course, comes as Russia has amassed 150,000 troops near Ukraine's border. So let's bring in our resident CIA expert, Phil Mudd, a former counterterrorism officer for the CIA and the FBI. Phil, what stands out to you when you, you hear Ukraine's defense ministry and Ukraine's largest commercial bank both were targeted with cyber attacks? Timing. Uh, You look at the the past day or so when Putin is talking about withdrawing troops. NATO is saying they don't see clear evidence of that, but Putin is saying it's happening. Putin is meeting with 
the German chancellor, who appears to be a mediator, appears to be making progress right at the same time, Jake. You could get an aggressive offensive operation, presumably, we don't know, but presumably by Russian intelligence services. If you're in the White House or you're in the Ukraine, what message do you take away from that at the same time that Putin is saying he's withdrawing troops? I'll tell you the message I would take away. This game is never going to be over until Russia wins. There might be a tactical withdrawal, but Putin's message is don't view that withdrawal as weakness. That's a sign of strength, and I think Putin thinks he's winning, Jake. John Cohen, who's the uh, intelligence chief for the Department of Homeland Security, um, today said that the escalating tension between Russia and Ukraine has the potential to exacerbate threats here in the U.S., specifically as it relates to to Russian disinformation campaigns. Um, What do you think, and are you concerned Russia could also launch a cyber attack on the U.S. at this time? I think about it. I mean, you've got to do that if you're John Cohen. He's a very sensible guy. I know him. But to me, in in terms of the threats, I would see the United States, that's pretty far down the list. Again, going back to what I said a moment ago, Putin is getting what he wants. He might annex the places that that Russia already controls, the regions in Ukraine. He sent a message to NATO that any expansion into Ukraine will be a bitter pill to swallow. If you're sitting in NATO or the White House today versus what you might have seen six months ago, you've got to say that NATO expansion eastward would be a lot more painful than we might have anticipated. So my bottom line is I wouldn't rule out that Putin would do that. My question is, Why do it now? You're winning. Stick with what you got, Jake. This all comes as intelligence sources are telling CNN that U.S. officials believe that Russian spies are working with Russian language media outlets to spread disinformation. They're planting, uh, they're told, we're told, uh, articles to boost public support for a renewed Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine. Um, Does that surprise you? Is that in keeping with how the Russians operate? It is. I mean, there's one piece of this that I think you have to have to note that, that people haven't talked about today. And that, that's the fact that the domestic intelligence service in Russia actually is involved in influence operations inside Russia. That is not what a democratic state does. That's one reason why America opposes Russian expansion. But that said, propaganda works, Jake. If you look at Russian attitudes toward the, the annexation of Crimea, that was a popularity boost for Putin. Why wouldn't you go out and tell the Russian people the same thing about further annexation? It's not our fault. It's NATO's fault. It's the Americans who are the aggressors. The aggressors put that out over the internet in Russia. Put it in newspapers. People will believe it. Heck, we live in an open society here, and people believe an election was stolen. Propaganda works, Jake. And if I were them, I might do the same thing. Uh, the Associated Press reports. The Associated Press reports that U.S. intelligence officials have also accused a conservative financial news website, Zero Hedge, of amplifying Kremlin propaganda. Uh, Zero Hedge has a, has a sizable American readership. They deny the claims. Um, at what point, uh, I mean, I'm sure Zero Hedge, is, is their, their basic attitude is, you know, we're printing different points of view. I mean, don't violate our First Amendment rights. I think that's right. And I think I'd also look at the successes that the Russians had during the last election cycle when there was a lot of sort of dissent sort of fomented among the American population on Facebook, for example, that was clearly a result of Russian disinformation and Russian bots. The cost of that for the, for the Kremlin, I thought, was relatively low. There's not that much we can do beyond sanctions. So if you're looking at this current situation and springboarding off the success of what Russia did during, during the last election, why wouldn't you say we'll spread more disinformation? What's the cost of that? The right. upside is high, downside low, Jake. Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Appreciate it, sir. Could brain surgery be a way to treat severe addiction? Dr. Sanjay Gupta finds out next. Stay with us. 
In our health lead today, masks will no longer be required indoors in California as of today, except, of course, in schools. Illinois and Washington, D.C. will lift their mandates in the coming weeks, again, except for in schools. All of these areas run by Democrats. In contrast, Republican governors either never put mask mandates in place or they lifted their orders long ago. Let's bring in CNN political commentator Kristen Soltis-Anderson, who's also a Republican pollster and strategist. And Kristen, as critics are going to say, the science on COVID has not changed. It's just the polling that's pushing Democratic governors to ask, ask to end their mask mandates. But you found it's a little bit more nuanced than that. You're right, Jake. There is a little bit that's different now in terms of the number of cases we're seeing. Um, there are just fewer cases in many of these, you know, particularly blue states that we're seeing roll back these mask mandates. But at the same time, the polls have changed since the spring. Um, we've now seen uh, a number of people who previously said they would support things like mask mandates, vaccine mandates, and so on, begin to now say that they are feeling a little ready to move on. And that's changing uh, the perception in uh, uh, of many of these leaders. There are a lot of businesses that require employees to be vaccinated before returning to work in person, um, though the U.S. Supreme Court obviously shot down Biden's attempt at a, at a national vaccine mandate for large businesses. You say that having the vaccine and supporting the vaccine mandate are two very different things. You're right, Jake. When you take a look at the polling on this, you'll see that there are, you know, for instance, a majority of Republicans are vaccinated. But at the same time, you would never want to try to advance a vaccine mandate if you are a Republican leader with a Republican electorate. And so we wind up finding that when it comes to the mandates, they're even less popular than mask mandates. It's just that the bar seems to be higher asking someone to decide that they want to have a mask mandate or pardon me, a vaccine mandate versus a mask mandate. At the beginning of the pandemic, many Americans thought we would eventually just beat COVID and move on. Now it seems as though people are seeming to accept that uh, we as a country need to learn to live with it in some way. So how might that mindset influence federal, state and local responses as, as COVID continues and evolves? Well, this has been a big mystery as to why, on the one hand, you look at people in the polls and you find vast majorities of Democrats saying they support many of these mandates, and yet these blue state governors and mayors are beginning to roll these things back. And I think it all comes down to one number, and that's the 70% of Americans who say that they think that we just have to get on with our lives when it comes to COVID. That even if they're maybe uncomfortable telling a pollster that say they don't necessarily support, uh, that they wouldn't want to roll back a mask mandate, they're more comfortable saying that they just feel over it. And I think it's that exhaustion with COVID that's part of why you're seeing President Biden's job approval on COVID go down. It's that frustration and that feeling that maybe we just can't win this battle outright that's driving some of these policy shifts. California is going to reevaluate its decision to keep the mask mandate for schools that it has at the end of the month. Seven other states have no public plans to lift their requirements for schools. What's behind the reluctance here, do you think? Well, one is kids don't have a vote. And so whether kids are in support of having masks or not is not as relevant to politicians as what their parents may be saying. And for a lot of parents, they're still concerned about what will happen if their kids get the virus. Um, We know that there's now this delay on getting the vaccine for those under five. And so there are still some real worries among parents who may know that their kids don't see, you know, especially little kids aren't enjoying wearing these masks, but feeling like it's important to do for safety. Um, But I do 
think you're going to begin to see a shift in this as well. There was a big backlash um, recently when you had that photo of Stacey Abrams not wearing a mask, surrounded by kids who were. Big questions about why are the rules so different for adults versus kids? Why are adults allowed to go to the Super Bowl or go to bars and not wear masks, but kids do all the time? I think you're going to begin to see some more pressure being put on public officials as well um, to try to, to sync those things up as we move forward. All right, Kristen Soltis-Anderson taking a look behind the numbers. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. In our series, United States of Addiction, a case of desperate times calling for desperate measures. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta looks at a radical last-ditch treatment for opioid addiction. It uses brain surgery and electrical stimulation of the brain in an attempt to reduce an addict's craving and anxiety. Sanjay teamed up with the Global Health Reporting Center to show this new treatment is showing some promise. At the age of 15, Jared Buckhalter was already making headlines. So Jared was, was a standout football player and he was named Mr. Everything. A football and basketball star, Jared was fielding college scholarship offers when a shoulder injury changed his whole life. I was prescribed oxycodone for six or seven months and by the time I was cut off, it was, it was too late. So I had already resolved myself to the fact that he was going to die. And that's a tough thing to come to. For 17 years, times were dark, troubled. Things happened that Jared still can't talk about. After countless failed tries at getting sober, Jared found himself at West Virginia University, at the Rockefeller Neuroscience Institute, considering a radical, experimental treatment. I came home and, and I said, well, you know, I'm going to have brain surgery you know, to, to potentially help me uh, stay clean. He said, they actually approached me about having brain surgery for addiction. And I literally wanted to pass out on the floor. Are you freaking crazy at your brain? There's no data. I mean, you were the first. What got me through it was when I did my research on Dr. Rezai. Dr. Ali Razai spent more than two decades honing a technique called deep brain stimulation, or DBS. You may know it as a treatment for Parkinson's, but it has also been used for obsessive compulsive disorder and in clinical trials for depression. But using it to treat addiction with its subtle dance of motivation, reward, and desire is the medical equivalent of a Hail Mary. There's people dying 100,000 a year have died of overdoses. So these individuals were at risk of dying from another overdose. When the day finally came, Jared's mother and father were at his side. We kind of said a little prayer and, you know, on we went. Over the next eight hours, Dr. Rezai drilled a hole in Jared's skull, then worked in a tiny piece of wire, barely a millimeter thick, and started stimulating deep in Jared's brain. The target that we do is the base of the compass right there. Addiction causes physical changes in the brain, hijacking our natural reward system, changing sensitivity to neurotransmitters like dopamine. The DBS probe is implanted to deliver an electrical signal causing changes in two different brain regions. And then there's a compass down there. Rezai says that stimulating this area, the nucleus accumbens, can normalize the dopamine response essentially rebooting the reward system. 
And then the other stimulation is basically trying to decrease impulsivity by, by uh, adding more frontal lobe activity, better judgment, better executive reasoning, things exactly. like that. Exactly, better decision making, because that part also with addiction is less active. It would take weeks or months to see if the improvement would stick. First, his life now involves taking the medication Suboxone to help manage any cravings he may have. And he's also holding down a steady job at a sober living house. But remember, for the last 17 years, he said he had never gone more than a few weeks without using opioids before DBS. So how many days has it been now since your operation, do you know? I know it's, it's about two years and uh, about three months, so it's been a little bit. Sober, all the way. It didn't seem reachable at one time, but you know, here we are, it doesn't even seem real. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN, Morgantown, West Virginia. How a missing uh, plot line in a Friends episode is highlighting who the Chinese government does not want to talk about. We'll go behind China's wall next. It is time now for our Behind China's Wall series in which we try to go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games. The Chinese government hopes to use the Olympic Games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedoms and its crimes against humanity and, of course, its genocide. Today we're taking a look at China's censorship of LGBTQ representation in media. Fans of the hit American show Friends, which was produced by CNN's parent company Warner Media, are furious in China after the communist government there blocked scenes that referred to one of the main characters, Ross, his lesbian ex-wife. Scenes like this have been completely removed. Carol's a lesbian. <laughs> She's living with a woman named Susan. And you knew about this? As CNN's David Culver reports for us now, call this the one where China might end up backtracking. Together for a shared future. That's how Chinese organizers have branded these Beijing 2022 Winter Games, promoting themselves and being welcoming to all. I am confident that our Athletes Commission will actively work with the diverse athletes to support their display of diversity, the commission's chairwoman told CNN. A message that in words appears to build upon the Tokyo Games, which had the most LGBTQ representation of any Olympics so far. But outside the so-called Olympic bubble in Beijing, that shared future is less inclusive. As we saw over the weekend, many on Chinese social media furious over the censorship of the wildly popular TV show Friends. As the show officially re-released on local streaming platforms late last week, Chinese fans noticed missing plot lines. Well, here's the deal. (laughs) Starting with the first episode... Discussions of the character Ross's ex-wife being a lesbian scrubbed entirely. There's been a consistent targeting of China's LGBTQ community in recent years. Last summer, dozens of LGBTQ organizations say their WeChat public pages were banned overnight. That sudden closing of a relatively safe social space in China's cyberspace followed the abrupt end in 2020 to China's longest-running annual celebration of sexual minorities, Shanghai Pride. One source telling CNN the organizers were under pressure from local authorities. Here we are, Beijing 2022. What do you see? We spoke with one of the organizers behind the now-canceled Shanghai Pride. He asked us to conceal his identity, fearing retaliation. 
there's obviously no clear line or clear turning point, and then things started to clamp down uh, at some point too. That clamping down happening online and in movie theaters. Gay content is regularly deleted here, denounced by censors as abnormal sexual relationships and behaviors. As Beijing tightens its grip over society, Chinese public television now even prohibits showing men viewed as effeminate. In general, they just don't want this to be a topic or creating any influence that doesn't fit, especially culturally. Some online have pushed baseless claims that LGBTQ groups in China have been infiltrated by foreign forces to corrupt young minds and destabilize society. Some now worried that foreign athletes' calls for tolerance and understanding may give even more bite to the backlash. I want to be, I guess, a beacon of hope or a light for someone who might be struggling in the closet, uh, just to know that they are worthy and that they can exist as their true authentic selves in the world and in sports. But official embrace of that authenticity might just be confined to the Olympic bubble, as Chinese censors work overtime to erase every trace of LGBTQ existence in public. Jake, most LGBTQ activists we speak to here reflect fondly on the Beijing 2008 Summer Games. They say that felt like an opening up, that there was this trajectory of promise and tolerance, but that was short-lived. Under current leadership, those activities feel that the, those activists rather, they feel that the Chinese Communist Party ideology is really leading society to reverse course. For them, they look at Beijing 2022 and they say this marks an increasingly closed off nation that is only intensifying its crackdown on sexual minorities, among other groups, Jake. All right, David Culver in Beijing, behind China's wall today. Thank you so much. Just one word, one word, that one word forced one priest to resign. Stay with us. In our faith lead today, thousands of Catholics might need to redo their baptisms, maybe even their marriages, over one word. That's because a bishop in Phoenix has disclosed that an Arizona priest incorrectly baptized thousands over more than two decades by incorrectly saying, we baptize, instead of saying, I baptize, which is the official doctrine for the baptism sacrament. Father Andres Arango resigned earlier this month and says he's now going to dedicate his time to helping those who have invalid baptisms because of his mistake. Joining us now is CNN religion commentator and Roman Catholic priest, Father Edward Beck. Father Beck, good to see you. Why is that such a big deal to a lot of us who are not Catholics? We versus I, it's, I mean, it's both first person. It's just one plural, one singular. What's the big deal? Yeah, Jake, I mean, some of us who are Catholic don't think it should be a big deal either. So the idea is that when you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you're in the place of Jesus. You're what's called an altar Christus. So the I is singular for Jesus. So for this guy to say we, he was trying to be more inclusive, to say the whole gathered community is receiving the child. So we're baptizing you together. Or you can make an argument, really. You're saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like three persons, one God. Seems to me that's more we than I. However, the formula is I. He said the wrong thing. And so now there's blowback about it saying that it was invalid, which I think is wrong, maybe illicit, but it shouldn't be invalid. But that's the crux of the issue right now. So does this mean that for the thousands of individuals who were not only baptized by this priest, but also went on to have Catholic weddings and the like, that if one goes by the bishop or, or the church, 
they all have to get rebaptized and remarried and, and everything else? Yeah, I mean, technically, that is what they are saying. But if you deal pastorally with people, or there's a phrase, I hate these Latin phrases to throw around, but ecclesia suplet means the church supplies. So if you do something wrong unintentionally, you intended to baptize, the person intended to receive. I mean, isn't that enough? So in internal form, you say, you know, maybe don't worry about this. But they're not going to do that publicly. They're going to say, technically, the guy messed up. Yeah, you may have to be confirmed again, communion again, get married again, which I think is so ridiculous. I mean, the church has so many other things to be worrying about, Jake. And people shake their heads and say, really? This is what you're focusing your attention on? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I was wondering about, obviously, including the ongoing assault, uh, sexual assault investigations within the priesthood and, and, and the like, um, not to mention just, you know, day-to-day uh, yeah. crises of faith and, and the like. I mean, it, it does seem like this, an investigation into one word it seems pretty trivial. Yeah, and if you look at the Gospels, you say, so what would Jesus do? I mean, wouldn't Jesus want these people to be baptized? You know, in the Gospel, Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know, the legalistic ones, look, you lay all these burdens on people. You should be lifting them from it. You should be helping them, not making it more difficult. So why is the church making it more difficult for people who want to be part of the community? Why are you saying you have to go through all of this rigmarole just because somebody said we instead of I? I just think it seems ridiculous. It seems ridiculous to people. Everybody's been talking to me and saying, you know, really, Father, this is really beyond the pale. And I have to say, I agree, but I know the church doesn't. I tell you what the church teaching is. Should have been I, and so they may have to redo it. All right, Father Edward Beck, good to see you again. Thank you so much. Coming up, water views will take on a whole new meaning if you live on the coast. Your home could be surrounded by water in just a few years. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, America's coastlines are going to shrink in the next 30 years. The ocean will claim a foot of land from the 95,000 miles of shoreline. That's according to a new projection from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This is happening fast. NOAA is warning sea levels will rise as much in the next 30 years as they did in the past 100 years as flooding from major storms becomes more common, more costly, and more deadly. Let's bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. And Bill, researchers say flooding will be more of a, quote, disruptive problem than a rare event for many cities. So what does that mean for major coastal cities such as Miami or New York? Well, it means they're going to get a lot more frequent, a lot more expensive. You know, these high tide flooding events that would happen maybe once every four or five years. It's annoying. Well, you can count on those happening four to five times every year. And sea level rise is not like the water in your bathtub where it all goes up evenly. Uh, We have a map that uh, NOAA and NASA and the Department of Defense and Army Corps of Engineers, so many scientists behind this report saying really it's the Gulf Coast, especially the Texas Gulf Coast, that could see a foot and a half of sea level rise. The East Coast will suffer much more than the West, Hawaii and the Caribbean, uh, not as much. But even if you live in the heartland, most of what you wear and eat and purchase comes through our ports. And if the last supply chain disruption was any indication, think about what happens if entire port cities are debilitated by these events. So these, these flooding situations, are, are these mainly going to be during storms or, or at any time? 
anytime. It'll be, you know, they call them king tides or sunny day floods in places like Miami and the Keys there. But storms like Sandy in New York were so much more expensive as a result of this. This is Miami, a story we did about people there raising their homes. Uh, We've got, you know, very wealthy folks in Charleston jacking up their mansions as well as that city plans a $2 billion seawall. But what about the rest of the people outside the seawall? You know, it's a, it'll, it'll be a patchwork of adaptation really based on means. And, and what's troubling is coastal seaside communities, beachfront property is your highest tax base. That's what you use to pay your cops and your teachers. So the ripple effect financially uh, will play out probably before the, the waves are lapping up on South Beach. Are, are scientists resigned to this prediction coming true? Is there, is there any way to limit the effects of sea level rise? Yeah, unfortunately, that to me is the headline of this report, is that this is 10 to 12 inches no matter what we do. This is baked in, much the way that when you crank up your oven, it takes time for it to cool down. There's no way for us to refreeze Greenland. Uh, there's no way to cool off the oceans to keep them, stop that water from expanding as it gets hotter there. But it, at least two feet by 2100, they say. But if things stay as normal when it comes to fossil fuel use, that could be seven feet, Jake. All right, Bill Weir with a sobering report. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. One final and sad note today. Best-selling author and renowned political satirist P.J. O'Rourke passed away this morning. NPR fans might know him best from his many years as a frequent panelist on the game show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. But O'Rourke's legacy is truly in his writing, smart, witty, always insightful. He wrote more than 20 books, including bestsellers such as The Parliament of Horrors and Give War a Chance. P.J. O'Rourke died of lung cancer At the age of 74, he leaves behind a wife and three children. To them and to all of those who knew P.J. O'Rourke, our deepest condolences. May his memory be a blessing. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. We actually read them. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can always listen to the lead wherever you get your podcasts. We do a podcast version of it. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.